0: Aloha. Welcome to The Conversation. It's Aloha Friday, February 2nd. I'm Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us. As we get our bearings in 2024, we're revisiting a few conversations with local leaders who are charting our path forward. Housing is top of mind this year, so our show today starts with the head of the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Kali Watson shares his plan to spend $600 million to provide housing for Native Hawaiians. We hear from the Interim Dean of the John A. Byrne School of Medicine, who stepped into the driver's seat last spring as the first woman of color to fill that role. Keck Observatory on the Big Island named its first Hawaii-born director in 2023. We'll hear his thoughts on balancing science and culture. And Supreme Court Justice Sabrina McKenna shares her story, going from playing basketball at the University of Hawaii to Hawaii's high court. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today we're re-airing recent interviews with homegrown leaders who have risen to the top in their fields. First up is Kali Watson, who stopped by our studios back in September to talk about his plans to spend the $600 million that the legislature appropriated to get more housing units developed for beneficiaries of the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Watson returned to the helm of DHHL for the second time and is more resolved than ever to get Native Hawaiians in housing after the Maui disaster. He says during his first tenure at DHHL, the wait list was 3,000. That jumped to 7,000, and now is at 29,000. In the meantime, a long-running lawsuit over the wait list, Kalima versus The State, was resolved before the Hawaii Supreme Court last
1: fall. Here's Watson. Clearly there is a big need out there for housing, but you also have a situation where you have a the Hawaiian community is suffering. And I, I think it's in critical emergency mode We have forty percent of the incarcerated Hawaiians, forty percent of the homeless Hawaiians families with lowest income, Hawaiians. Most crowded households, Hawaiians. So it goes on and on and on with respect to the social, economic, and health issues as well as cultural issues that plague our people. And so to me, the foundation part of the solution, major part of the solution is housing. Provide them with a stable environment that they can live and prosper. And so that's where I think this program while challenging, has been given a big boost by Act 279 by the legislature in, you know last year, got 600 million. That's a lot of money, but we also need to use it wisely. And so that's where the leveraging and using other funds and accessing other federal, state, and county programs, as well as the private sector, whereby we can accumulate these funding sources and really move some of the projects that we have on our books. We have about 20 projects that our commission has approved which was uh, part of the conditions in getting the six hundred million that the legislature wants to see what we're going to use the money for. Of those twenty projects, about fourteen involve residential construction. So it's anticipated we'll do about thirty one hundred. I, I feel we'll do a lot more. But the thing is, you know, personally, I think we're going to need more money, especially with twenty nine thousand on our wait list. But we've already encumbered two hundred million, and so the other four hundred million with the projects we have that we're reviewing and moving forward anticipate we'll use up the remaining 400 million because we're not limited to just our existing lands we've acquired a bunch of new lands in in great locations with existing infrastructure as well as utilities which a lot of our existing inventory lands don't have and so that's been the challenge historically for the program is the lands have been poorly located with little infrastructure, very costly infrastructure that is needed, and so it's it's a different ballgame as we move forward in the program.
0: And so, talk about the
1: infrastructure
0: because you know while you're putting aside some of the six hundred million to buy properties, what about the development costs of putting in the sewers, you know, the water, uh, you know, that kind of thing?
1: Well, typically, when you put on a unit or a homestead, it'll cost you about two hundred twenty thousand per unit for infrastructure alone then you're looking at the vertical construction will cost over 400,000 so you can easily do the numbers and see that you know each each unit is very very expensive so that's why the the use of this funding it, it's just going to go so far and we're definitely going to need more funding we also want to build these new homesteads as well as expanding existing ones in a way that is conducive for a, a neighborhood, it's not just the vertical construction. So we are also working with uh, different elite trusts as well as OHA to put in schools, put in cultural centers, put in kupuna housing, put in medical clinics, and various other things that are really critical to making a, a community that's you know so attractive, inviting. But more importantly, with the services and the environment that's really conducive to raising a family.
0: Can you speak to a particular project? That you're developing.
1: Well, we just put out our RFQ, which is request for qualifications, in our Kauluokahai project in Kapolei, which is next to the Croc Center, as well as a TOD station. So in that one, what we did was we combined four parcels rather than going piecemeal and developing the infrastructure. Then, you know, putting out to bid to do the vertical. We combine all four parcels, which will result in 548 units being built by one developer. And so the developer, obviously, its per unit costs will go down, which is a benefit to our home setters. But more so, they'll do it in a, a quicker and more timely fashion that will address our waiting lists a lot quicker, which is very, very important. So a lot of the projects we're doing, we're doing that. We're doing large numbers, which uh, requires us to identify developers with the proper capacity to build at that level.
2: Is
0: there anything that you can speak to as far as the infrastructure piece on other islands uh, besides Oahu?
1: Yeah, I I guess there's a variety of people on our wait list like Kahikinui way out in you know isolated area, we, we do have people on our waitlist that want to meet the challenges of putting up and living in a homestead where there's no utilities. All we're doing there is putting in a road. So it, it's very challenging environment, but we do have people on our wait list that want to do that. But I think more realistically, the majority of the people on our waitlist want the amenities, want access to you know schools and restaurants and jobs. So that's why we've kind of emphasize more logistically homesteads that are conducive to that kind of demand.
0: Lots of people have been waiting for the old bolodrome development, you know, that's been in the works for many years and and that's in town and that's rentals and and uh, lots of folks are anxious to see that take shape.
1: Yeah, that's a new project for us. It's a new attempt to use our lands in a more productive, I think, way, especially lands that are somewhat limited, especially in urban Honolulu. So now when we're going up, we're doing a 22-story high-rise involving about 278 units, primarily two bedrooms. It is a rental program for people coming off the wait list. We're looking at maybe trying to convert that into actually a homesteading award. Scenario. So, the, the idea there is to create some kind of equity and interest in the unit that they can pass on to their successors or heirs. That's something new. So, I'm having legal take a look at that. We're looking at possibly the route whereby we treat the land as separate from the actual CPR unit, where you have a financing approach on the construction of the vertical. But on the land, what I'd like to do is issue a homestead lease that is kind of separate, but it does allow them to then have a, a interest in that unit, which they can pass on to their successors.
0: Okay, so we just got to be innovative, creative as we try and tackle this crisis. Is there anything you want to address just with this whole Kalima lawsuit? You know, that has been going on forever.
1: Oh, yeah. I'd like to reach out to the participants that are in the process of receiving their settlements. I would like to suggest that they work with us. We identify a homestead that they could be awarded and use that money to reduce their monthly payment. You know, I used to be a plaintiff attorney and Unfortunately, and not to say that this will happen, but invariably, people that receive large sums, they, they spend it. you know, not always foolishly, but in some cases foolishly, whereby at the end of the day, maybe two years they got nothing. So if you can invest it in something that you're gonna have forever that you can pass on to your kids or whatever, to me that would be a wiser choice. And so the department is ready to work with you, as well as you know the trustees as well as your advisors or whoever to kind of fashion a, an approach, whether it's putting the money in an escrow account or whatever, but we are gonna have a lot of housing being developed and the opportunity is gonna be different from before where you have choices and it's not just a large three, four bedrooms. We're looking at townhouses as well as the condos that, like the bolodrome but there'll be opportunities to use the funds in the way you want but we'll also have models that might fit your needs more more in line with what you want to do in the future.
0: And then how does that work? I mean, so they get a settlement. Um, they're already on the list, on mm-hmm. the wait list. Um, do they get moved up or they just have have that offer? If, if you choose, here's what we have available and you can... Uh, be uh, Beyond Homestead Land?
1: Yeah, it's going to be a process where on our website, we'll identify the different projects that are starting to evolve to where it's a point where you can make a choice. And then we're working with the developers to also have them develop websites. So you can go on the internet and take a look at the different choices. And then we also have and be working with third party, including staff regarding what category do you fit into, where you can do a turnkey, or do you need to maybe subsidize part of the mortgage so you can get it down to where it's affordable. And so we just kind of work with you to fashion approach where we can use that money to make it more a viable situation for you in home ownership. And so there's counseling available. There are third-party CDFIs, as well as like Hawaiian Community Lending, that is gonna be working with the department and you, if you choose to, where you can kind of figure out where best to use your funds.
0: Okay, and then anything else you just wanna say just about that chapter in DHHL's history?
1: Well, I think you know it's uh, a real opportunity that's come around. To me, it's a generational opportunity. Be prepared, but also be very active in exploring your options, especially of those on the mainland and elsewhere that would like to come back to Hawaii. We invite you back because there's a lot of you that can add to a community in not just your presence, but your skill set. And we are looking for workers at the department. If you are interested in working for the department, we have all kind of jobs available from, you know, development, accounting and whatever workers can move our program forward that's who we're looking for and so do consider working for the department And we do have a website that you can take a look at dhhl.hawaii.org and on there look under jobs and there's a list but we're not limited to that so if you want Contact the department directly, me personally, if you want to talk story. And uh, <laughs> we're, look, we're looking for workers. So right. we invite you to be part of the program and, and the, the effort to really make the program uh, successful.
0: All right. Well, Kali Watson, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. All right. Thank you. That was Kali Watson, director of the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, talking with us about how best to spend the $600 million that lawmakers set aside to get more housing developed for Native Hawaiians. Watson recently asked lawmakers to extend the deadline on when that money has to be used to the summer of 2025. We're re-airing recent interviews we did with local people in leadership roles. Our next homegrown talent marked a first for the University of Hawaii last March. Dr. Lee Buenconseholam assumed the helm as interim dean of the John A. Burns School of Medicine. She stepped into the shoes of Jaris Hedges, who held a post for 15 years. Buen Olam is both the first Burns graduate and the first woman of Filipino descent in the role. She came to the studio last spring to talk about the challenges facing the med school and the healthcare industry. She's a family practice physician who attended Lelehua High School and Stanford
3: University. She said she was humbled to be chosen for the role. I'm just really honored. You know, when I started in medical school, I knew I wanted to serve the community. I, I chose academic medicine rather than going into a private practice because I felt I could make a bigger impact by training the next generation of family physicians. And being a dean or in this role never, ever crossed my mind. But I was just really blessed to be asked by him to join the dean's office about six years ago. And my kind of overseeing the medical education programs and the graduate medical education programs has really helped to prepare me for this. And I do feel that you know this is home for me and i've been privileged to really be here since the second problem-based learning class. So really 1990 is when I started. And so to have been able to witness all the transformation in the curriculum and the expansion, to be awed every day by the research that our amazing researchers do, it's really humbling, actually. I mean, we just have such a great ohana, and I I think we really uh, all try to live that. And so I'm just really honored to help be part of that.
0: We have come out of the pandemic and that whole situation has only cast the harsh light on the problem that we have of the shortage of healthcare workers, doctors included. Yeah. You know. How do we deal with this? I mean I know lots of effort has been made to bring our
3: people up, but Oh my gosh, what a challenge. It, it is a challenge. And I'm you know, happy to say that UH and many others across the state are really part of a multi-pronged effort, not just for physician workforce, but for all health workforce. Members, because, like you mentioned, during COVID, our respiratory technicians, you know, our medical assistants—I mean, the people who basically make healthcare run—we just didn't have enough. You know, certainly our, nor- our nurses. So, what what Jobson has been doing for the physician side is we have had these pathway programs for many years that really reach out to the high schools in some cases reach out to middle schools they tend to be more concentrated in areas and communities with higher health needs because again we want to attract students from those communities so that they can return to those communities so we have a lot of pathway programs we have our imiho'ola post baccalaureate program for those who are interested in science maybe not not sure about medicine, you know, we have many other programs to just help kind of whet their appetite and see, you know, could healthcare care or, or, or science or research career be for me? You know, it takes a lot to get into medical school and to succeed in medical school, and it's expensive, even though, you know, our medical school is really for what you get. It's really one of the cheapest in the country with our cost of living here and the fact that many of our students and their parents you know don't come from wealthy families it's it's a huge cost and so dean hedges has made it a huge concerted effort to really get scholarships, and we have about a third of the class on four-year full-ride scholarships thanks to the Weinmans and to Queens and Hawaii Pacific Health and, and Kaiser and, you know, Castle and, and others, but through the generosity of so many other donors, including alumni, about 93% of our students receive some form of scholarship, and that's really important because we know that the high educational debt burden, I mean, it's a problem nationally, right? right? and it also can inhibit folks from choosing specialties like primary care because, you know, we're not paid as well as some of the other more procedure-based specialties. Do you remember when when you were going through medical school Mm -hmm. and what that was like with the expenses? I I do. I took out loans to pay off my credit cards, which I was using to, you know, pay for food. And and I was fortunate. I had a tuition waiver, but just the cost of of living and books and, and everything, it was still... And I was starting to pay off my college loans, so you know, it's definitely not easy. So the scholarships and the financial assistance, reducing that debt is is actually part of that workforce solution. The other thing that we have been trying to do besides grow the medical school class. So when I started, we had 52 students a year. And when Dean Hedges started, I think it was around 56 or so. And gradually now it's 77 students per year. Ideally, we would want to get to about 100 per year, but we need clinical training sites and we need faculty. So, you know, we work on that with a lot of folks and hopefully over time we'll be able to do that. You know, during the pandemic, I recall interviewing a young woman who
0: graduated from Farrington. Mm -hmm. She was Filipina Uh and she had just gotten a fellowship to work in Dr. Fauci's office. And, you know, I was at the start of the pandemic and I thought, wow, you know, she's got a front row seat yeah. to all the workings of, of that, you know, agency. And then we also interviewed a couple of Marshallese doctors who Wonderful. were product of yep. the Jabson okay. School. So Dr. Ricklin and Dr. Dr. Yes, Alex. Yes, yes. And to see what they were doing for the Marshallese community yes. Yes. on the Big Island and in Arkansas uh, was tremendous, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. they were able to make an impact Absolutely.
3: Yeah. And we've had so many of our faculty from, so like Dr. Palafox, who works with not only the Marshallese and the Pacific Islander, but also with the Filipino communities, you know, Dr. Koholokula and, and so many faculty in the Department of Native Hawaiian Health, Dr. Okihiro, Dr. Manakea, Dr. I mean, just so many, just really very much focused on working with the communities, listening to them, trying to understand what their needs are, because at that time early in the pandemic, you you know the community wasn't really at the table right and so i had the the privilege of being in some of those you know conversations at the state and the county level and it was very apparent early on that we're like no some of these communities are really really high risk and we have to figure out a way to make sure that all of these plans and communication plans fit communities who may not have great internet access or for whom English might not be their first language or second or third language, right? So yeah, we've just been really great because we've got such a good team that has a long history of community engagement and has formed that trust with the Pacific Islander and the Native Hawaiian and the Filipino communities and so I think have been able to help guide them. And You know, ultimately, you know, the statistics are pretty terrible and the disparities are still, you know, very apparent. But it could have just been so much worse, you know, had we not had trusted physicians that kind of, again, grew up here and, you know, that the community trusted.
0: And what can you share with us about the numbers of med school students that are coming up? I mean do we know the breakdown between male and female? Are we seeing more women get into this profession? Yeah,
3: in fact, for the last several years, it's been more than a majority of women. And so we've got, I think, close to 60% women. So of our 77 students, 85% of them are local Hawai'i residents. I think we have about 13 or so from the neighbor islands. We have a handful of folks that are first generation. And we have increasing numbers who went to University of Hawai'i at Manoa or UH Hilo for their undergraduate, which is also, you know, fantastic to see. If even throughout the undergraduate years, you know, that it, that is increasing. Uh, I think that speaks to the strength of UH.
0: And, you know, at one time, I know the med school down there had visions for a preschool, and they did have a little, you know, area set aside for the preschool, and for whatever reason, it, it didn't work out. Uh, and now there's a big push for preschools you know so I don't know is there a need at this point if we've got more women in the coming to the schools
3: or yeah know. you know that's a that's a great question we don't have that space I believe that space is now our our clinics at Kakako, which is where a lot of our um, AIDS clinical trials and other other things happen but you know with women in the medical workforce there is a lot of attention to but really for everybody you know residents work very long hours right and, and so the accrediting bodies for both Medical school and residencies are making sure that no matter where you train, you know, we're making sure that if a, if a person needs uh, time off for personal health care or, you know, for family, that they can ask for it without feeling so guilty, you know, because there's a power differential, right, if you're a student or, or whatnot. For residency, we need to make sure there's, you know, breastfeeding pods available so that women don't have to breastfeed in the bathroom like, you know, before and other things. But yeah, child care is, you know, certainly some of our families, our students, you know, struggle a little bit with child care. But that's, what's really nice if you've got family here now it's not necessarily the same for our residents our, our residents and fellows about a third of them are from here and so many of them do have family support but the other two-thirds are not and many of them by the time they're residents they do they do have families and so yeah
0: you mentioned faculty mm-hmm. so how are we doing in that area do we have
3: vacancies or you know what's a snapshot yeah so we've had a lot of retirements in our basic science faculty and somewhat in the clinical side but definitely in the basic science side. And with the economy, and and we had a hiring freeze and whatnot for a couple of years. And so we haven't quite been able to keep up with those retirements. And so that's definitely something that's very high priority, because we need to have our research faculty to not only do great research, which is going to benefit the people of Hawaii, but really to also train that next generation of grad students and and others. And so, you know, we we are a bit short for some of our basic sciences. And then, you know, we do have retirements on the clinician side and you know you hear about burnout and Mm -hmm. and whatnot and so we've been very fortunate that our environment and with our health systems have been very patient and, and really just trying to do what they can to decrease that risk of burnout. But there's no question, right? Everybody yeah. has just been tired. So on the faculty side, on the clinicians, yeah, we're, we're, we still have a few positions that are open. And honestly, some of our departments are trying to expand because we need to, right? We need to have more subspecialists or expand GME programs to the neighbor islands. And so that requires faculty. So we're continuing to work on that. Recently, we featured, you know, how the university uh, has garnered a number of large
0: grants. Yes you know (laughs) if it's epigenetics or, you know, but right. still
3: so lots of headway made in, yeah. in the research area. Yeah. And Dean Hedges, even though he'll retire, he'll continue to be a key part of one of those large infrastructure grants, Ola Hawaii. And, you know, we've got our associate dean for research, Dr. Gershenson, she's in charge of the diabetes Cobra And yeah, so we just have some really wonderful, you know, research going on that really has the community at its core. And so even if it's basic science research, say in heart disease, it's, it's really trying to understand why do some ethnic groups or some populations suffer more heart disease than other populations. And so, you know, we really try to keep the the community and the needs at at the the heart of what we do.
0: So as you uh, take over this position for the interim, I don't know, you know, you look out on the landscape, um, what's your hope?
3: So my hope is that we can really pull together as a state and and this is so not just a healthcare sector to make Hawaii healthy it really has to be multifactorial right and so we saw this during covid we had the private industry and the banks and the economists and others with the healthcare we call that health and all government or that whole of government approach is really needed and so whether it's looking at issues of land or taxes food security you know all of those things are social determinants of health and and of course our cost of living and housing you know and so i'm hoping that the medical school can continue to play a role in helping to you know positively influence some of those areas certainly we teach our students about it but we also want to make sure that we're part of the conversation when it's appropriate for us to be part of a conversation and or that we're guiding others to these important who, who really should be there really just trying to amplify the voices, you know, and we've got wonderful health sciences programs at UH, certainly at Manoa, but also in Hilo. We've got all of our allied health programs at Kapi'olani Community College. And so there is a concerted effort now to make sure that within UH, we're really communicating very well and trying to find synergies so that we can work together, but also in partnership with our healthcare systems, the Department of Health, Department of Human Services, Department of Corrections, you know, to, to just really try to come up with some real solutions, you know, that will last in better health for Hawaii.
0: That was Dr. Lee Buen Holam, Interim Dean of the UH Medical School in Kaka'ako. UH recently announced that it had narrowed down the search for a permanent dean to three candidates. Buen Olum is in the running and UH is expected to make a decision later this year.
3: Support for
4: HPR comes from the Kim Koko Fund for Justice of the Iwamoto Family Foundation, committed to a sustainable economy, supporting toxin-free food producers, arts education, and programs that develop creative, problem-solving leaders. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists.
0: Hi, I'm Issa Gucciardi, author of Coming to Peace, and next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about my new book, Coming to Peace, Resolving Conflict Within Ourselves and With Others.
3: Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation
4: comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University.
0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. And today we have a Ho show featuring recent conversations with local leaders who have risen to the top of their fields. The office of our next guest is particularly high, in elevation that is, Keck Observatory on Hawaii Island named Rich Matsuda as its next director back in December. Matsuda was born and raised on Oahu and is the first Hawaii-born director of the observatory. An electrical engineer by trade, he's been on the staff at Keck for over 30 years, joining the company after leaving Boeing in 1993. The Conversations Russell Sobiono talked with Matsuda just after the announcement was made. Matsuda believes his background and experience gives him a unique perspective of how astronomy fits into local culture.
5: I believe my background of uh, being a local boy you know, raised in, in Hawaii really does give me a unique perspective in terms of the values that I'm, I'm grounded in, in terms of the importance of respectful relationships in the community and also for this place in Hawaii that we, we appreciate so much. And so my dedication to the excellence in science remains but i think this being grounded in hawaii really adds to the perspective and it'll really help kek go into the future
4: i think it's an interesting situation that you're in is really an example of someone exploring kind of this intersection of culture and science and i just wanted to get your thoughts on or or expound on your thoughts on how culture and science can exist in balance here in hawaii
5: So glad you asked me that question, because I think one of the things that maybe has gone wrong over the, at least the recent history, is sort of pitting culture and science as a dichotomy. Oftentimes in in the media or in conversations, I've heard the term culture versus science, and that is something we really need to dispel. I believe that culture and science can is really just two different ways of looking at nature to me. And these two different ways can actually complement and integrate with each other rather than be in this false dichotomy of opposition. And that's something I really try to bring to all of my conversations, whether it's in the astronomy community or in our local community, that uh, current science of astronomy from our contemporary view and then the ike kupuna from our Hawaii traditions can be looked at together at the same time and inform each other.
4: I think a lot of the arguments in favor of of more science in Hawaii is centered around the idea that the first Hawaiians were very science oriented, you know, as navigators, as astronomers, that science was a big part of the culture. And there are many Hawaiians and many local people in science-related industries that feel that they can work together and they're not in opposition to each other. It'll be an interesting journey for you as you move forward.
5: Yeah, I agree. I think in order to get there, we need to do some healing of relationships, honestly. I think the situation around TMT and then the, the protest movement that occurred created some really deeply held feelings on the subject of astronomy and Mauna Kea. And so I believe, you know, relationship building and, and seeking mutual understanding is the place we need to start and work really hard at. And we've been doing that over the last few years. And I believe, you know, it's really, first of all, for creating a healthier community that we have these kinds of dialogues. Hopefully that'll open up the space to explore this really interesting integration of the science and the culture.
4: I've read that you've been instrumental in efforts to help Hawaii's astronomy community foster and strengthen community relationships. Can you talk about some of the work that you've done in that area?
5: Sure. And it's a group effort among many in the community and in the astronomy community. But for me personally, one of the most impactful Ways that occurred was being part of the Mauna Kea Working Group that the legislature established back in 2021 to look at a different way of managing Mauna Kea and sat in a group with seven Native Hawaiian representatives of the community and then myself representing Mauna Kea Astronomy along with some other folks. It was a group, working group of 15 and created, it was a safe space for exploring our sort of identities and where we come from, and to learn and build mutual understanding and trust. And from that, a lot of relationships developed and more conversations between folks in astronomy and in the community. And so on that level, that was really impactful. On another level, our staff tries to really support and uplift, especially the Waimea community, but the whole Big Island community. In terms of just nothing to do with astronomy, just being a positive, you know, the organization being a positive citizen in our community, working side by side with others to uplift a community.
4: I know that you're an electrical engineer by trade, but what prompted you to venture into the astronomy field and more importantly, stay there this long?
5: <laughs> That's a great <laughs> question. So a um, couple reasons, I mean, being in Hawaii was important. So... My training came in aerospace, working for Boeing, and I missed home. And I think one thing that influenced me coming here was when I was a young boy, around 10 years old, we visited from Oahu and came to Hawaii Island. And I actually got to visit the summit of Mauna Kea. And my father had arranged a tour of the UH telescope up there at the time. And we never got to go inside, but I knew I was really intrigued by the you know, the look of the building, and I wondered what was going on in there as a young boy. So I think that was in the back of my mind. (laughs) And so when I had the chance to come work for Tech, it was kind of a to fulfill that curiosity. But also I have family living here on Hawaii Island. So my sister and her husband and family live here. So it was a chance to come home, work on something really cool, and be in Hawaii, reconnect with Hawaii, and reconnect with family. That was 30 years ago. And I, I think the, the culture of Keck just being a, a great place to work, really interesting work, it's super engaging, you know, so uh, we, we operate the telescopes 24-7. The only time we don't operate at night is if we have bad weather. And that sort of drive to on sky and enable these discoveries, it's, it's really, really engaging. And it's always kept me um, super motivated all through the 30 years.
4: And kind of staying on the topic of jobs in the astronomy field, one of the points that is touted by TMT supporters is the Mm -hmm. jobs the telescope will bring to the Big Island. Mm -hmm. But you're only the second Hawaii-born director of an observatory in Hawaii in the 50-plus years we've had observatories in Hawaii. Say TMT manages to get built despite the opposition. What should our young people interested in astronomy careers be doing now so that we can fill the majority of those job openings with local people?
5: Yeah, and I'll just say we don't have to wait for TMT. We have jobs at Keck and the other observatories that are filled and can be filled, and some of them are filled with local people. One thing for the public to understand is what Hawaii provides is the scientific capability for astronomers around the world to do their science and, and their discoveries. And the types of jobs that requires vary from technicians to engineers like me, to business people that you need to run any kind of organization, outreach folks. And then actually the number of sort of PhD astronomers needed to operate is relatively small among that collection. So all of those kinds of jobs are available. You don't only need to be an astronomer to work at an observatory like Keck. So whether you're in a trades program at the community college, whether you're studying electrical, mechanical, or software engineering at University of Hawaii, whether you're studying accounting or human resources or communications, all of those kind of skill sets are needed to run an observatory. One of my big passions is to create those pathways for local people especially you know students and early career people to find pathways and to work at the observatories.
4: Rich Matsuda new director of Keck Observatory thanks so much for your time this morning.
5: Mahalo. That was
0: Rich Matsuda, the new director of the Keck Observatory on the Big Island, talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. They spoke just before the holidays. Matsuda also sits on the Mauna Kea Stewardship and Oversight Authority. The Office of Wine Affairs recently filed a lawsuit to dissolve the authority. HBR's Kuve Hirishi walked through the legal challenge on our recent show. You can find that story and more on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. To close our Hanaho show highlighting local leaders, we have a conversation with Hawaii Supreme Court Justice Sabrina McKenna. She was honored last spring with the 2023 Margaret Brent Woman Lawyers of Achievement Award. It recognizes attorneys who have paved the way for other women in the legal profession. She's the fourth from Hawaii to receive the award. The others were late Congresswoman Patsy Takimoto-Mink, Attorney Ellen Godby-Carson, and U.S. Senator Maisie Hirono. Justice McKenna was born in Japan and earned her law degree from the University of Hawaii Law School, where she also played on the Rainbow Wahine basketball team. She was first appointed as a judge thirty years ago, joining the Hawaii Supreme Court in 2011. The conversations Russell Subiona got the chance to talk to Justice McKenna about her career last May.
4: How does it feel to be mentioned alongside those women? It is a tremendous honor,
2: and I feel completely humbled. And it's unbelievable. You know, I I'm not sure I'm worthy. I do not consider myself worthy to be named along with these people, but I'm very humbled to have received the award.
4: I've read that Congresswoman Patsy Mick is, is one of your heroes. What about her do you admire? So much
2: about her. She became an inspiration to me initially because I was an early beneficiary of Title IX, I didn't understand when I tried out for the UH Wahina basketball team that there was any possibility of receiving a scholarship if I made the team. That was not why I tried out. I just wanted to play. And when I made the team and Coach Patsy Dunn gave me a scholarship, I asked, you know, what what is this about? I, I started learning about what it was about. And, of course, I met Dr. Donis Thompson the first women's athletics director and learned of her friendship with the congresswoman, Patsy Takemoto mink And I learned of all the struggles that they were going through and continuing to go through in terms of getting athletics as well as women in general in education be treated more equally. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so in any event, because I received the scholarship, I learned about Title IX and I started learning about, Congresswoman Patsy Takamoto Mink, and I just came to really admire her tenacity, her intelligence, her courage, stand up for what is right against strong odds and to be pushed down and pushed aside, but just to keep going, to stand up for what she thought was right. And I just thought, you know, what a woman, what a human being, what a person to be able to consider an idol.
4: You've been described by the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association as a trailblazer, a staunch advocate for diversity and inclusion in the legal profession, and a true role model, mentor, and heroine to women, especially those in the LGBTQ and underrepresented communities. When you look at your career, do you feel like you've kind of carried on some of those same traits that you admire in Congresswoman Mink?
2: I don't think that I can, I don't see myself in that way. Mm -hmm. Although, so it's kind of interesting to me that I'm being recognized in this way. I think I'm only doing what others have done for me. Mm -hmm. I was mentored and encouraged by various people, men and women. Mm And I feel like it is all of our obligations to, to help others if we are able to do so. People did that for me, and I think it's my turn to do that for them.
4: I know that you've been on the Supreme Court, uh, on Hawaii Supreme Court since 2011. When you first started out your career in law, was it always your goal to become a judge or on the Hawaii Supreme Court?
2: Definitely not. I don't think I ever envisioned really getting to this position until much later on in life. When I was a first-year law student, there were two people that inspired me. First was one of my adjunct professors who, in the spring semester in my appellate advocacy class, was appointed to become a circuit court judge and his name is Simeon Akoba. And after he became a circuit court judge, when he was appointed, I remember thinking, wow, lawyers become judges. I didn't even know that lawyers became judges. Being from Japan, their system is different. Judges are trainees, judicial trainees from right out of the Judicial Research and Training Institute. So I didn't really know that lawyers became judges. And when my adjunct professor, lawyer, professor became a judge, I remember thinking, wow, lawyers become judges. Maybe that's something I can aspire to someday. And it was my extreme honor that when I joined this court in 2011, I was able to join Justice Simeon Akova on this court. And in that same class, my final mock argument was before a lawyer, Bill Milks, and then his wife came in to observe. And his wife is the retired Judge Marie Milks. And she was the first Asian American woman judge in Hawaii. And she came in and after my argument, she had some nice words to say for me and i just remember just being so thrilled and just so honored that the first asian american woman judge you know had nice things to say about my mock argument and she also became a mentor later on
4: when i think about the kind of underlying skills of becoming an attorney and and becoming a judge i feel like a lot of people feel like if someone is a prolific reader or a prolific talker They might end up being well-suited for the legal profession. What do you feel makes for an excellent judge? What are some of the traits that you feel make for an excellent judge?
2: I think first and foremost is a real commitment to justice. And in order to try to achieve justice, the willingness to do the groundwork, the willingness to work hard, to research the law, to go beyond what might be written, to be willing to go do independent research into the law. And I also think life experience is helpful to be able to have compassion toward other people and their circumstances in life. And of course, it does require some ability to read and write. And I was a prolific reader when I was young. I read all the time. And to be a litigator, oral communication is also important. But not that many attorneys are actually litigators. So one can become an excellent attorney, even if one is not that proficient in oral communication. But, you know, I think it's emotional intelligence Also, the ability to do the book learning Mm -hmm. and to have compassion and understanding about human life and experiences and to have this sense of wanting to do the right thing and wanting for the world to be just.
4: And when you look over your career, do you feel that your profession has changed or evolved to be more inclusive of women and underrepresented communities? Or do you still think that there's more work to do?
2: It's clearly become much more inclusive, Mm -hmm. but there is still more work to do. Remember that in 1972, when Title IX passed, only 7% of United States law graduates were women. And much less than that percentage were women lawyers. And in 1972, I believe there was only one woman judge in Hawaii, Judge Betty Mm Patisic who we consider the mother of our family court. But it took a while for the number of judges to increase. And we're very proud that the Hawaii state judiciary has the most diverse judiciary in the entire country as compared to other states in terms of gender as well as ethnic representation. I don't like the word race because there really is no such thing as race. But we still have a lot of work to do. There are many other states that do not have the appropriate representation in their judiciaries. The federal judiciary does not represent the country. And the rule of law requires that judges represent the communities they serve. So most jurisdictions are not in compliance with one of the principles of the rule of law, which is to have a diverse judiciary that represents the community they serve. But fortunately, in Hawaii, we do.
4: As societies continue, as our society continues to evolve, what do you see as the most important issue that Hawaii's legal community will need to pay attention to to be the most ready to address? I believe the most important issue
2: facing any judiciary at this point in time is the existential concern of climate change. Mm -hmm. And I think judiciaries need to be prepared to address these issues pursuant to their own constitutions and laws that might apply.
4: I read that you were born in Japan, that you attended UH Manoa, where you also played basketball, as you had mentioned before. I know you were one of the first recipients of Title IX. I know that the Hawaii Senate unanimously approved your nomination to the Hawaii Supreme Court in 2011. Of all of your life and professional accomplishments, What are one or two that you're the most proud of? My children,
2: without doubt. My children are my joy and pride. Of course, you know, professionally, Mm -hmm. uh, having been able to serve and to be honored with this position is just amazing. It's not something that I ever envisioned as a young person. So I'm humbled every day as I walk into this building.
4: Thank you so much, Justice McKenna. I really appreciate your time.
2: Thank you so much, it's truly an honor.
0: That was Hawaii Supreme Court Justice Sabrina McKenna talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. Justice McKenna was recognized with the 2023 Margaret Brent Woman Lawyers of Achievement Award. It recognizes attorneys who have paved the way for other women in the legal profession. Justice McKenna was also chosen to deliver the 12th Annual John Paul Stevens Lecture last October, where she spoke on the urgency of climate change. That is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we have a call-in show planned. Yanji Denise will sit in. Call our Talkback line. Leave us your comments, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. The conversation is available as a podcast on our website, or look for it at your favorite podcast store. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Savannah Harriman-Pote backyard quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.